And you may be seated. Uh, as you get yourself situated, if you've got a Bible with you, whether that's a hard copy or on a phone, and you want to open up to the book of Haggai, we're going to be in verses 10 to 23. We're actually going to finish the book of Haggai this morning, and that's going to put an end on the 11, 10 or 11 weeks that we've spent here together going through Zephaniah and Haggai. And one of the things that we've tried to do every week in this series is look at each passage that we're going through and ask ourselves the question, what does this teach us or what does this affirm for us about who the Lord is? I heard a a pastor, a teacher once say that if you really want to understand the entirety of your Bible, you need to work hard to understand the first 15 chapters of your Bible. Everything that we see in all of Scripture builds on the truth of who God is, and we see that revealed immediately at the start of Scripture. And so, as we've worked through Zephaniah and Haggai, what we've seen about who the Lord is are not revelations about who God is that the people at Zephaniah's time finally received. They're reminders of who God is because he's always been that. And so, if you were to just take the first 15 chapters of the Bible, you would see that just like we've seen in Zephaniah and Haggai, that the Lord speaks. He calls everything into existence, that he speaks to Noah, he speaks to Abraham, he speaks to Adam and Eve, that he is the Lord exclusively, and that not only is he the only God, but he wants all of the world to know and to understand that he is Yahweh, the Lord, as Zephaniah or as Haggai has said, he is Yahweh Saba, the Lord of armies. He is the sovereign, controlling, powerful God of all of the universe that he's active and just and merciful, that he's judged, that he saves, that he's worthy. I, I love this picture in Genesis chapter 4, Abel, in the story of Cain and Abel. He's presenting an offering to the Lord. Not because scripture in Genesis 4 has commanded that he give an offering to the Lord, but just because he's worthy. He's worth that. And so Abel is giving to the Lord the fruit of his crops. We see that the Lord is present, that he's there in the first opening chapters of the Bible, you can't read that without understanding that he's involved and he's present in all that's happening and that the Lord is strong. And that brings us to this morning. We're going to end this by seeing the reminder in, Genesis, or in uh, Haggai 2, 10 to 23, that the Lord blesses. Again, this is set up in the early chapters of the Bible. I'm just going to read from Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those, or I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. That is the Lord's statement right there in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, of all that he's going to do for all the peoples of the world through all of human time. He's going to bless his chosen people. And through those people, he's going to bless all the peoples of the earth. The Lord blesses. That's who he is. We're going to see that in Haggai 2, 10 to 23, but it's not the first time we see that in Scripture. It's a reminder of the Lord's character. A little differently than we've done over the course of this series, I actually want to just kind of show you all of my cards right off the start here uh, for the sake of clarity as we go through this message. Um, it would be easy to read not just this passage of Haggai, but actually all of Haggai and walk away thinking that maybe there's some truth to like a prosperity gospel, sort of name it and claim it sort of theology. 
That's not the case in the book of Haggai. It's not the case in Haggai 2, 10 to 23, but we need to be really clear about what we're talking about. And so what do we understand about the Lord from this passage is that he blesses. What are we going to see or what reminder are we going to get about the gospel from this passage? And that is that the Lord's blessing is a person. The chief blessing that the Lord has bestowed upon humanity is the person of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when the Lord says that he's going to bless Abraham and make him a, his, his nation a blessing to all the nations of the earth, that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Descended from Abraham, ultimately through the line of David, and a blessing with grace and salvation to all the nations of the earth. And then what do we do in response to this? Well, we walk in a grace-driven obedience. We experience the richness of, we display the presence of, and we share the wealth of the Lord's blessing when we walk in a sincere, grace-driven obedience. Those are, that's what we're going to see. And now we're going to kind of reverse engineer this. What do we learn about the Lord? He blesses. What are we reminded about the gospel? That the Lord's blessing chiefly is a person And then what do we do with this today? We walk in grace-driven obedience. So that's where we're headed. Let's start with the first uh, piece of that. And that's what do we see about the Lord here? We see that the Lord blesses. Look at uh, Haggai 10, or 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. As has been the case throughout the book of Haggai, that's the date statement for when this Um, section of the Lord speaking through Haggai is taking place. It's in December of the year 520, which means it's been about two months since Haggai 2 verse 1 took place. Something's happened in the gap here. In Haggai 2 verse 1, the people were in the process of getting going, building the temple, and the Lord gave them this reminder that I am strong. Like He came to encourage them. I'm going to fill that temple that you're building I will adorn it. I will be the beauty of that temple that you're building. I will be the glory of that temple that you're building. And then in the two months that intervened, something happened. It's possible that they stopped working. And so the Lord felt it necessary to go back and speak to them again through the prophet Haggai. What's more likely is that as they were building, all of a sudden their work starts to come from a heart that's in the wrong place. That's the more likely Uh, context of what's going on here. We can do this all the time. We're in relationship with the Lord. We're seeking to walk in obedience to him, which is what Haggai is all about. And that obedient action can turn from something that's joy-filled and something that's fueled by a response to God's graciousness to us. And it can turn into something that's like drudgery. It can turn into something that feels like obligation Our obedience can be driven by a heart of legalism that says, well, if I do these things, then I know I'm right before the Lord. I'll be religious, I'll be righteous, and therefore, I'll be worthy of the Lord's salvation. That's legalism. It's also possible that we can start to uh, work and interact with the Lord in such a way that says, if I'm obedient, then I'll be blessed more. That's kind of a prosperity gospel sort of message. Uh, that I, I'm not like super proud of this, but let me share an example. When I was in high school, and it actually it, I, it lingered all the way through college, which is the part I'm not proud of. But I would think to myself, like if I had a really big test or something, I would think, if I do a quiet time today, I'll get a better grade on this test. 
Like the Lord will just supernaturally bless me with the answers to this thing if I'm sure to do the religious thing first. That's not true, students. It's good to do a quiet time. It's not going to help your grades. But I would act that way. And the motivation then is coming from a wrong spot. If I do the religious thing, something good will happen to me. Ultimately, that obedience is about who? That's, that's obedience is about me. That's not about honoring the Lord. It's not about acting in response to his graciousness and his goodness. That's just about I need a thing. And if I do a thing, God will give me the thing that I need. That's not true. That's not how the Lord's blessing functions. But oftentimes we can turn our obedience into that. And so the Lord comes to confront something of those natures in the Israelite people. Maybe they thought building this temple was the means by which the Lord was going to accept them. That's legalism. Maybe they thought building this temple was the means by which the Lord would bless them. That's like a prosperity gospel. Both of those are false. And so the Lord comes to confront that. Let's just read here in verse uh, 11 down to 14 for now. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the priests for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? And the priests answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people. And so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there is defiled. The crux of this passage is going to take place in verses 18 to 23, but we have to do a little bit of work to get there. And it starts with the sort of Old Testament parable where the Lord is trying to draw out a specific point. And so he says in verse 11, Ask the priests for a ruling. That's not because God needs help understanding his own law. That's because he wants to take the Israelite people kind of on a process of, of self-revelation, of self-exploration here. And so he says, ask for, ask for a ruling. It reminds me in Mark 3, 1 to 6, Jesus asks the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to save or to kill on the Sabbath? Jesus doesn't need help understanding Sabbath law. He wants the Pharisees to understand. God doesn't need help understanding the parable here. He wants the people to get it. And so it comes in two parts, a positive and a negative. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The answer is no. What's happening there? The image is of consecrated meat. That was meat that would be uh, set aside for an offering or for a sacrifice in the temple. And it's being carried in the garment of a priest's clothing, which was also holy. Uh, it had been set apart and holy. And so you've got this holy meat. And the question is, if I touch that with some stew, has the stew become holy? And the priest's answer is no. The Old Testament makes it clear. That's not how that works. The reason being, Holiness doesn't rub off. I can't take something holy and rub it on something that's either unholy or just neutral and make that thing holy. Let me give today's corollary. If you grew up in a Christian family, you had a mom and a dad who loved the Lord, served Him, saved by His grace, seeking to live obediently with Him. You're not just Christian because they were. The holiness doesn't rub off there. The righteousness doesn't just trickle its way down to you. 
You've got to have your own moment of receiving the Lord's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Holiness doesn't rub off. That's point number one here. But then it goes on in verse 13, and Haggai asks the opposite side of the question. If someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, that would be the bread, stew, wine, oil, or other food, does it become defiled? So if I can't take the meat and touch the stew and make it holy, what happens if I touch a dead body, which the Old Testament says makes me ritually unclean, and then I touch the stew? Have I made the stew defiled? And that answer is yes. So holiness doesn't rub off, but the opposite is that sin stains everything. That's the opposite side of this. So I was trying to come up with a good illustration, and the best illustration I could come up with is Cheeto dust. I love Cheetos. I like the crunchy ones. I like the puffy ones. I eat Cheetos in a particular way. I eat one Cheeto, and then I lick my fingers. I only use these three fingers when I eat Cheetos. Then I, I lick all three fingers because I don't want the Cheeto dust to get on anything. Your child eats Cheetos this way. Whole hand, whole face, right? And then they find your most beloved possession <laughs> and they rub their Cheeto dust fingers all over it. I, I've played uh, a game of like, would you rather with people where you give two undesirable options and you pick which one you want. And my favorite is, would you rather have Cheeto dust on your fingers for your entire life or s repeatedly smash your toe into a wall? The answer is the toe in the wall. Because the Cheeto dust stains everything. It just gets on everything. That's how your sin is. To expand the illustration, it's not that you do a sinful thing and now you have quote-unquote Cheeto dust on you. Now you're sinful. It's that you were born with a Cheeto dust-stained heart. That is your default position. And that sin stains everything. It corrupts everything. And so are the people here building the temple now out of a place of drudgery? We're stained by sin at that point. So building the temple, wonderful, but a heart that's not sincere, that's not a holy act. You've, you've stained it with your sin. Is it being built out of legalism? If we build this temple, then we'll be right in the Lord's eyes? Stained by sin. You've got Cheeto dust on the temple. Is it being built because if we build the temple, the Lord will bless us? Stained by sin. Now all your, your stones and your lumber has orange Cheeto dust all over it. That's the picture here. And so that's why in verse 14, Haggai draws the conclusion to the parable. So is this people. Just like their efforts in building the temple now are stained by sin, it's defiled, sin stains everything, so is this people and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. So is every work of their hands, even what they offer there is defiled. Sin stains everything. Holiness doesn't rub off, but sin stains everything. Let's read verses 15 to 19. Now from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month 
from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yet produced, but from this day on, I will bless you. If you're looking there in Haggai, flip back to Haggai chapter 1. This is not the first time the Lord has made a statement about the fact that there's a a lack here for the Israelite people. In verse 6, he said, You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. In their disobedience, they didn't flourish. Now let me, this is where I want to be very clear. Note from Haggai 1 verse 6, the issue is not that they don't have enough. It's that they don't have enough to be satisfied. In their disobedience, there's a lack of contentment. And so rather than living in right relationship with the Lord and walking in a, in a repentant, sort of grace-driven obedience, they're walking in a way, right, that has placed something else of, in the position of ultimate importance. And that thing will never be enough. That's how our sin operates. You get something else in the place where the Lord is supposed to be and you rest all your contentment on that thing. Let's just say money. There will never be enough money to satisfy you. You will always want more. It will feel like that wage bag has a hole in it. I'm putting the money in, but it's not enough. You make affirmation and relationships kind of the thing that you rest all of your identity on, then there aren't enough compliments in the world to satisfy you. You will always feel like you're striving for more. The flip side of that is if you're staking all of your worth and your value on the Lord, there's contentment there. That's the issue of lack here. Look, you thought you had 20 measures of grain. It was only 10. It just wasn't enough for you. You thought you had 50 measures of wine from the vat, but it was only 20. Not enough to satisfy you. There's a withholding here of blessing, but the the thing I want to make clear is that the withholding sort of nature is a lack of contentment in the heart and in the lives of the Israelite people. And then in verses 18 and 19, he says, there's a way to blessing here, but the way is through my grace. It's not about what you're going to do. He doesn't say that you're going to get blessed because you do A, B, C, and D. He says, look back at the granary, look at the vine, look at the fig, look at the pomegranate, look at the olive tree, verse 19. They've not yet produced, but I will bless you. You don't, you don't deserve it. You haven't done anything to earn it. I'm going to give that blessing to you. That is the Lord's grace. When we're living in obedience to God, an obedience that begins with a confession of our sin and our repentance and a, a statement and a recognition of our need for a Savior, we'll flourish because we'll understand that we have everything that we need. That's an issue of perspective. If I have Jesus, I can be totally content. I don't need more because I have him. The Lord wants something out of the Israelites here. And I've been trying to put myself in their position. You know, in in chapter 1, the Lord comes through Haggai and he says, you've got these nicely furnished homes while the temple lies in ruins. Shake out of your apathy. In chapter 2, he says, hey, thanks for starting to build. I'm going to fill this thing. In the end of chapter 2, he says... Thanks for building the temple. You're not quite there yet. 
And I think if I'm one of the Israelites, I'm thinking, what do you want from me? Like, you told me to build the temple, I'm building the temple, and now you're telling me that something isn't right still. What are you looking for? He's looking for sincere hearts. John, or John Wesley says this, How can you, on principle of reason, spend your life in a way God may possibly forgive? Building up your house, trying to stake all of your identity on something other than the Lord, hoping that he might forgive that, instead of spending it in a manner which he will certainly reward. And that manner is a posture of repentance. A posture of grace-driven obedience. He will certainly reward that. And the chief reward is a person, Jesus Christ. The Lord's blessing is a person. You get Jesus. So now you're looking around at your your harvest, right? Back to verse 6. And you're saying, ah, yeah, maybe we could have harvested a little bit more this year, but I've got Jesus. Yeah, I wish I had maybe a little more food, a little more drink, more clothing, more wage, more money in my bank account. I wish I had a higher status at my workplace or whatever the case might be, but I have, I have Jesus. Like, I'm content. There's the Lord's blessing. And in verses 20 and 23 here of Haggai chapter 2, there's a prophetic word about this person. He's already said in verse 19 that he's going to bless them. And then he starts to talk about the nature of that blessing. Verse 22, I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration of armies, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration. And make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Verse 19, there's this blessing of plenty. In verses 22, there's, there's a political statement. Uh, in the second half of verse 22, there's a statement of blessing of protection. And then in verse 23, there's something about a person. We've got to understand this signet ring imagery in order to really nail this down. In this time, a king would use his seal in order to validate something that was from him. So a king issues a proclamation and it gets his stamp or his seal on there that says, this is actually from the king. You can trust that. And in order for that seal not to be counterfeited and placed on proclamations not from him, he would often wear that seal on his hand as a ring. And he would take that and make a statement that would get it written out, and he would stamp that seal from his ring onto that proclamation, and then it would go out to the people. A king could even then give that seal to a governor or some other ruler or minister in another place and by extension give them some of that authority so that they could make a proclamation and stamp it with the king's seal. But that was always on his finger. It couldn't be counterfeit that way. Jot this down. We're not going to have time to go look at it. But in Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 26, the Lord makes a similar signet ring statement to a previous king of Israel. It's right before the exile, and he says to King Jehoiachin, I'm going to take you off of my finger. If you were a signet ring, I would throw you from my hand, tear you from my hand, is what Jeremiah 22, 24 says. That's what happens. The people are sent into exile because of their sin. Now they're back in the promised land, and the Lord makes a statement of mercy to his people. 
I'm going to take that ring and put it back on. And Zerubbabel is going to be the person. So the Israelites think to themselves, this must be the Messiah. This must be the person we've been waiting for. Spoiler alert, not him. But guess who's listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Zerubbabel. In the same way that David was going to sit on the throne forever, and that comes to fruition in Jesus, Zerubbabel is going to be like the signet ring on the king of the universe's hand, and that's going to come through the person of Jesus Christ. Blessing is going to be a person, and that person is Jesus. And so Jesus provides for humanity the Lord's stamp of approval. He is the seal of the Lord's authority. And so these promises in verses 19 and 22 and 23 find their fruition in Him. In eternity, in you know, the final days, we're going to receive a blessing of plenty. You're not going to want for anything in heaven. We're, the description of heaven in Revelation is just like, there's so much of everything that they're plating the streets with gold. You're not going to lack anything. There's going to be a political sort of peace there because Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign and nothing is going to stand against him. There will be peace there because there will be no sin and no enemy to rise up against him and there will be the person of Christ that will be the ultimate celebration of all of eternity. That is blessing. We receive that, all of that, the promise of it, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and receive the Lord's grace because his blessing is a person and that person should move us toward grace-driven obedience. We experience the richness of, we display the presence of, and we share the wealth of the Lord's blessing when we walk in a sincere grace-driven obedience. And so the Israelites are told here, build the temple, but do so with the right understanding. It's my grace that's going to bless you. Verse 19, you don't deserve it. I'm just going to give it to you. So let my grace be the thing that motivates your work on my behalf. Let my grace be the thing that sustains your work on my behalf. And in the end, it will be my gracious stamp of approval that allows you to stand in my presence and makes you holy. That is in Jesus Christ for us. The motivation for us in our obedience is not, I might get some blessing from the Lord. It's that I have been given the Lord's blessing in the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I will walk in obedience to Him. And so, four kind of statements about our obedience. In response to the Lord's grace, obedience is where humanity flourishes you're walking in relationship with the Lord, then the way in which your life here and now is to the full, like Jesus says, is that you strive to walk in obedience to Him. You pursue holiness. The commands of the Lord are given for our good. He set boundaries in places where He knows that we will flourish. He's marked off the areas where He says, hey, it's not good if you get outside of this. And so we're obedient. His kindness has marked out the way for us to live a full, fulfilled, flourishing life. And so, motivated by grace, we walk in obedience. 
In response to his grace, our obedience then ought to be sincere. We obey not out of drudgery, but out of delight. Joyce Baldwin says it this way, Half-hearted obedience is no obedience at all. To think that any time will do to become serious about his cause is to fail him completely. Haggai's remedy for today, as for his own day, is a church mobilized for action to which he would say, be strong, work, fear not. We can be strong and work and fear not because we have received the Lord's blessing in the person of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want our half-hearted obedience. He doesn't want our obedience that's misguided thinking that because we're obedient, we can be right before him or because we're obedient, we'll gain some sort of blessing. He wants sincere obedience and he wants it now. So don't delay in that. Be sincere in your obedience Now, start now. Don't think to yourself, well, in the next season of life, the kids get a little bit older. I graduate high school. I'm done with college. As soon as I get a job, once I get married, then I'll be obedient. I'll tell you what, you can push that season back as far as you want and always find an excuse. But in response to the Lord's grace, we should be sincerely obedient now. In response to His grace, in our obedience, we give blessing away. David Platt talks about uh, meeting urgent need in the world by working hard in order to bring blessing to the world, but he clarifies the most urgent need in the world is a spiritual need. So we work hardest at giving away the blessing of the message of Jesus Christ. But there is also urgent physical need in the world, and so we work hard to give away material things to meet those needs. We build the house of the Lord with the truth of Jesus Christ, with the message of the gospel. Grace inspires us to do that, but we also give of our material blessings in order to support and help those who are in need. Grace inspires that as well. In just a few moments, I'm going to have Steve Cummings come up here and talk about a specific way you can be involved in this through LCF and our partnership with Team World Vision, meeting the need of the global water crisis in our world. We've partnered with Team World Vision over a number of years, and there's an opportunity to take part with that again in order to, in obedience to Jesus, recognize a need, an urgent need in the world, and meet that physical need while also meeting the great spiritual need. There's another way that you can be involved with this that you could take a step forward in today, and that's that right out at the information desk here, there are some black bags. You should have gotten an email with a video from Kurt Huber about those bags. Inside those bags is a list of things that Inasmuch Ministries Food Pantry needs in order to meet physical needs here in our own community. You can take that bag, the list is inside, go to the grocery store, fill it up, bring it back, and Inasmuch will come and collect those bags and we can be part of stocking that food pantry. Those are obedient acts motivated by grace. We give blessing away, both through Team World Vision and through Inasmuch Ministries. There's also the opportunity to meet people's spiritual need through the proclamation of the gospel while we meet their physical needs as we give away our material blessings. Yes? Last item. In response to His grace, in obedience, we experience the fullness of blessing. Remember, that blessing is a person. Our first step of obedience is is repentance that accepts the Lord's grace for our salvation. 
It's not about obeying the Lord because we will get, we will receive, or we will become prosperous. That's the prosperity gospel. That's a name it, claim it type of theology that is not biblically true. You want to name and claim something? Then call on the name of Jesus Christ and claim his grace for your own and you will be saved. That's what you can name and claim. It's not about naming some boat or a private jet and claiming that because if you're obedient, the Lord will give it to you. No, if you're obedient in repentance, the Lord will give you Jesus. Like, what else do you need? What else could you possibly want? In our obedience, we experience the fullness of blessing, and that's the person of Jesus Christ, which means that as we walk in obedience, we get Jesus in greater intimacy with him. When we walk in repentance, we get Jesus in a greater awareness of our need for him. When we walk through a season of trial, we get Jesus in a greater dependence and looking to him. If you're in a season of joy, you get Jesus in a greater appreciation for what he's given you. If, you get, if uh, you're in a season of plenty, then you get Jesus in a humble understanding that all you have comes from him. When you get Jesus, if you're in a season of want, then you understand that everything that you need comes from him. You might be in a season of longing. You get Jesus in that season of longing because what your heart needs most is him. If you're in a season of fulfillment, then you get Jesus in that because you've been fulfilled by him. Blessing is a person. The Lord blesses. He's blessed us chiefly through Jesus Christ. And we walk in a grace-driven obedience because we've received the greatest thing that could ever be held out to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite my friend Steve up here to tell you how you can take a grace-driven step of obedience and being a blessing to the world. All right, thanks, Tim. Good morning, LCF. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to be with you this morning. Um, I have both a message of thanks and an invitation. Uh, first of all, as Tim mentioned, we've partnered with Team World Vision here at LCF over the last three years. Um, you might see some of the orange jerseys around. So um, what I want to do is thank, first of all, uh, the folks that have participated or given to Team World Vision over the last three years, we've raised $233,400 for clean water for Africa. Amen. 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 Give some context. That's 4,668 kids that have clean water for life that didn't have it before. Amen? That's awesome. So if you see some of the orange jerseys around, give them a high five. Give them a high five. That's so awesome. And if you've donated or given, that's just so awesome. We're so thankful for that. And then there's uh, the invitation. But first... I'm going to tell a little bit of a story. So you see here the picture we've got. Uh, recently, our team went to Ethiopia. This is the Shishogo region of Ethiopia. This is a dried-out riverbed. And on the left there, you see seven-year-old Barakat, um, his little brother, five-year-old Tigabu, and then the older sister, 11-year-old Mariset. And you see they're scooping up dirty watering and putting into this jerry can. They do this twice a day. Uh, they're sent out in the morning and the afternoon. They walk about six kilometers, about 3.7 miles, to collect this water not going to school, not going to church, collecting dirty water. Dirty water, by the way, that most likely kill them because of, uh, you see how dirty, and it's the same water that the animals drink out of, uh, and all the bugs and, and that sort of thing. And so um, there's a lot of work to be done. Now, we've done a lot of great work, but there's more work to be done. There's 844 million people, just like these three, collecting dirty water on a daily basis. 50% of those kids that are Tigbu's age, age five, won't even make it to their fifth birthday. 1,000 kids will die today because of lack of access to clean drinking water. Okay, that's the bad news. But the good news is Team World Vision is here. It's the largest organization in the world providing clean water for people that need it. And so here's the invitation. Um, I'm going to invite all of you to join us this year 
to walk, to run, to crawl, to hop, to dance. I don't care how you get across the finish line, but I invite you to cross the finish line of the Kansas City half or full marathon on October 19th this year. Now, I know when I say running and marathon in the same sentence, I probably lose some of you, right? But I promise you, 80% of all of our runners aren't runners. They didn't start from being a runner. They started from being just like you, just like me, maybe not even running a 5K in their life. We have a couch to finish line training program that I promise you will get you there. And it's going to save lives like these three here. One of my favorite stories from last year is Bill and Jenny Wiley, uh, members here at, at LCF. They couldn't be here this weekend. They're out of town. Uh, they said I could tell a little bit of their story. Bill and Jenny came up to us last year at this time after the information session and said, we're not runners, uh, but we want to do something. And they did. And they crossed the finish line. Bill had a bad back, still walked and crossed that finish line, got that medal, and were one of our top fundraisers. Just an awesome story. Not runners, Crossing the finish line, obedience-driven, um, uh, you know, grace-driven obedience for the Lord. And so I'm asking you to join the winning team. Jesus is the winning team, and Team World Vision LCF is the winning team. I'm just asking you to say yes to just getting some more information. We're going to have an information session. We'll meet right down here, and then we'll go off. So just meet me here after the service, right down here, and then we'll go um, tell a little bit more. Committing, uh, coming to the information session doesn't commit you to the team. It just says, I want to learn more. And so we're going to play a video here in a minute that tells you a little bit more about it. When you watch the video, there's probably a couple of voices in your head. The one that says, nope, that's not for me. It's for the person sitting next to me. Um, but I want you to listen to that other voice, that still quiet voice that says, I can do this. I should do this. I can walk in obedience with the Lord, and I can make a difference. I'm just asking you to say yes enough to come down to the information session and learn more about that. I believe that most of the great things in our life uh, that God has in store for us are on the other side of fear. And I'm just asking you to step through that a little bit to come hear more about that after the session or after the service. And so join me here after that. Let's play the video. I remember hearing about the global water crisis for the first time. I could have shut down, been numb by it. The issue was too big. Someone else would do something about it. But God was calling me to be broken by the global water crisis, to do something, to be awakened and activated, to move my feet and run a marathon to change the course of a child's life and the course of mine. But was it for me? I'm not a runner. Marathons? Fundraising? That's just not me. I'm not a runner. I'm not somebody who does athletic events. Or is this opportunity for me? Could I maybe, just maybe, say yes? When we say yes to God's crazy invitations, boldly trusting in his faithfulness, he does amazing things. Because on the other side of yes is water and fullness of life. And God has something in it for you. And believe it or not, this is going to be fun. Because this isn't just running. This isn't just water. This is the church. This is the body of Christ coming together to love and serve the least of these brothers and sisters of ours to see and experience God's transformational power.
This is a revival. Will you join us? Haggai the prophet and the book of Haggai is unashamed in calling the Lord's people to lives of obedience. Not lives of apathy, not lives of indifference, but passionate, grace-filled lives of obedience. And we want to challenge you to take those obedient steps today. You can do that by coming to this information meeting and seeing how you can be involved in the global water crisis. You can do it by grabbing one of the black grocery bags out there. You can do it in any number of ways in your life. We're providing you two opportunities, but there are a multitude of ways that you can take steps forward in obedience. And the Lord's call to that would be, be strong, fear not, get to work in a grace-driven sort of way. Amen? Amen. If you want to hear more about Team World Vision, you can come right down here. Uh, Otherwise, we will see you next week.